happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 295 for May 24th, 2023. My name is Wes Fryer coming to you from Matthews, North Carolina, just outside of Charlotte, where I am just finishing up my first year at Providence Day School as a STEM teacher and media literacy teacher. And I am joined, as always, by the EdTech Yoda of the North, who is reminding us constantly in his byline that he is pretty much human, but sometimes perhaps augmented. It's Dr. Jason Neifer of Missoula. How are you, Jason? Good evening, Dr. Fryer. I am well, sir. And as you mentioned, it's I'm joining you from Missoula, Montana tonight in lovely western Montana. And I have to say the weather's been pretty nice. It did dump rain here on Monday, but for the next at least week or so, we're going to have beautiful 70-degree days here in western Montana. And I will say that in relatively short order, we had a really late winter this year and, and a, a, a late start to spring. Um, and it's kind of suddenly turned super green here. So very exciting, uh, beautiful um, uh, green foliage, and the lilac bushes have have uh, 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 popped up, and they smell absolutely amazing. Okay, but I have to ask you about like fires and weather. I've been <laughs> I've been watching some stuff on YouTube about possibly jumping into an El Nino and these fires in Canada. Are you guys having smoke? And what's up with that? We, we have. Luckily, the last two days it's been pretty decent. Um, but part of the problem of, of living in the Missoula Valley is that. Once smoke uh, uh, hangs out in the valley, it takes a pretty significant weather event to get it out of here, whether it's um, a whole lot of, of wind or rain on Monday is really what helped us out um, with that. So, yeah, pretty exciting. Um, uh, and this is early. It's early, early for that, right? That, it is not... very early. And, you know, th there is that uh, those those fires in, in, in uh, Alberta and British Columbia, and we are seeing a ton of smoke from those. But fortunately, it's been blown out of here the last two days. Um, but, you know, we've talked I'm sure, to the longtime listeners of the podcast, uh, you know that, you know, late summer is is a, a pretty consistent fire uh, risk for Western United States. But it's particularly true of Montana. So we're keeping an eye on that and hope that first the fires go out in Canada for our friends to the north, but also that we have a relatively moderate fire season. Absolutely. Well, we do always need to, you know, talk a little bit about things that are not show related, but this show is apparently about tech news and something called artificial intelligence. I've heard it's a new thing. Yeah, it seems like it, it's getting a headline or two as of late. But hey, if this is the first time listening in, that's a, Wes is exactly correct. We like to take a look at the week's news and kind of shoot it through an educational prism to see if we can help out folks that are interested in the use and misuse of technology in classrooms, find some clarity um, in in this uh, extraordinary topic. And as, as Dr. Fryer mentioned, we, um, as most weeks, have uh, an interesting amount of um, uh, interesting amount of, of links on that topic this week. So um, other topics this week, privacy, um, Apple, Google, uh, social media and tech correction news. And then you know, in case we need it, there's you know quite a few uh, links about AI this week. So Dr. Fryer, would you like us to do one of the non-AI um, uh, topics to start with, or should we just jump in the rabbit hole now? Oh, let's let's do a couple other ones, but, but, but we won't spend three fourths of the show uh, doing them. Uh, thank you, by the way, for uh, doing the yeoman's work there on the links. Um, we'll remind everybody that if you're ever curious, uh, like tonight, to see that oh look, Dr. Fryer didn't do Jack. Um, although I'm putting a link in now, 
you can see who uses the semicolons and the commas between the sources and the dates. So I am throwing a link in um, that I'd actually heard about on the Clockwise podcast, which I listened to this morning uh, going into work. And have you heard of Tele TV? I've not. Okay. Well, this is an archive um, dot today link because those are our lovely uh, paywall bypassing links. So this is from Wired Magazine. Um, this is from May 17th. The true cost of a free TV. Tele TV tracks you and bombards you with ads on a dedicated second screen. It could help normalize smartphone style surveillance in your living room. And so while most of us, well, I, I shouldn't say that. While all of us should know that any kind of smart television is absolutely a surveillance device. And if you're not interested in being a part of the attention economy and the surveillance economy, um, you know, the first thing that you should do with any kind of new television is disconnect uh, any built-in smart devices and then just like hook up an Apple TV or another device. Uh, of course, you know, those are going to get some data for their respective companies as well. But the folks on Clockwise were saying, hey, at least this one is open and honest and saying what it is. You can get this free 55-inch TV as long as you are good with seeing a constant stream of ads um, on, as it says, the second screen. And apparently, if you don't um, switch channels and, and give the idea that you are interacting with it, both screens can actually become full advertisement channels into your living room. So, Dr. Neifer, are you in need of a new 55-inch TV, and will the Tele TV fit the bill for the Neifer household? Super interesting. Um, the thing that I think is is most interesting about that is that I, I do know that you can get a decent sized smart television at uh, the Jolly Mart or Best Buy or Costco for well under $300 now. And if you buy them on sale and you don't particularly care about the quality, uh, you have substantially under that. But what I don't get, though, is that I just try to figure out what, what data they must be collecting that's worth that amount to them. Because um, uh, it, it, you think about it from this standpoint, right? Like smart TVs are already collecting data on you, right? So it's not that data because that already exists in, in a lot of ways, shape, or form. And yes, they're, they're phoning you some advertisement on the second screen experience. Um, so that that's also uh, interesting as well. But, um, you know, it, it does talk about how it, it tracks a customer's uh, queries, settings, preferences, applications, purchases, and the buttons they click, the time, the frequency, the duration of their viewing and activity. But I would also think that that happens in a lot of smart TVs as well, too. So, yeah, it, it uh, you know, a lot of people will do a lot of pretty crazy things for free, right? Like free is a... Um, certainly a, a tempting offer um, uh, uh, for the purposes of, um, you know, attracting folks. But I, I think we keep having to ask the conversations, what are you getting in exchange for free? Um, it does remind me of, Wes, I'm wondering if you remember this. This was 20 years ago, 22 years ago, maybe. You used to be able to buy, or I'm sorry, download an app for your uh, computer that displayed an ad on the bottom of your computer. And as long as you were active, it paid you X number of cents uh, per, per minute uh, to see the ads on the bottom. And this would be, you know, the uh, uh, 20 years ago. So we're talking about 
you know, if you were lucky, you had a 19 inch monitor, right? That was a big CRT monitor you could have in 20 years ago. Um, I was uh, uh, pretty famous and made fun of by students because I used to have two CRT 22 inch monitors on my desk that were just ridiculously sized. Um, um, and uh, um, uh, oh, I think we're only 1280 by, uh, by some ridiculously low resolution, but um, that all, uh, so you you know the typical user was using a little 14 inch monitor with an 800 by 600 resolution and they paid you for that and so the hack was was that you could download um it only only paid you while you were actively using the computer and uh you could download apps uh from the internet that would kind of shake your mouse around the screen to trick it and so for like six months i would get 19 dollars uh to <laughs> look at these ads um, and it paid for my internet. So, you know, I wasn't, you know, uh, complaining, but it kind of reminded me of that when I heard about this. Well, what I thought you were going to say was, wasn't it cable one? What was, was that what was in, they were, it would put in, in school classrooms. Uh, cable one or was it channel one? Channel one. It was something one. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, free television, huh. but at the cost of subjecting your kids to whatever advertisements they decided to uh, put in there. Betsy Springer, welcome Betsy, is in the chat room. And she says, in college, we had an app for um, making free landline phone calls home, but it was ad-based. How interesting. Um, on the Clockwise podcast, they mentioned, I don't know if it was Micah Sargent or um, I'm trying to think of the, of the other co-host, uh, Dan Morin. But one of them, uh, I don't know if they did this with a Raspberry Pi. You can do this where you, it's a very geeky thing. But you monitor all the upstream um, data that is being sent out, like from your television. So I guess they they put an intermediate device uh, in between the, well, whatever they on their internet uh, router. They were able to monitor the port where the television was, and then they were able to see all of the packets that were being sent, and there was a large quantity of them. So yes, advertising. You know, all of us, e each Facebook account, um, each Twitter account, all of, of these things are are being monetized. Um, Mr. Musk may not be successfully uh, doing that right now, and his subscription plans I don't think are going too well for the bird site. But anyway, it, it you know advertising it continues to power a, a good bit of the web. Yep, absolutely. It, any other articles you'd like to talk about before the AI? Yeah, uh, let's hit a couple of um, uh, these Google articles. Uh, this one, I believe, is from you from last week, but apparently Google's going to start deleting inactive accounts. Yes, and uh, so this is good to know. It, at some point, many of us, I think, created extra Google accounts for different things. Um, I actually created one a while back um, to segment my YouTube watching because... I was having my YouTube channel sort of taken over with a particular flavor of videos that I didn't really want to just dominate. But um, there's been some clarification articles since then saying, I don't think that the YouTube videos that are associated with these are, are going to be deleted, um, but you need to log in. So if you've created something, for instance, our you know the Story Chasers, which is now like a passion project of mine, but for a while it was a nonprofit and we have a Gmail account. Well, I haven't checked that in a while. So if it's if you've gone two years, you know you you risk losing it. Um, I know that uh, Mr. Musk has been threatening for inactive bird site accounts that they possibly um, you know could be uh, deactivated and then given away uh, to somebody else who's going to be active. So anyway, that may have, that may affect 
some of us who have some extra personal Google accounts. Absolutely. And I'm just looking at mine too. Um, um, I have an old Google account I haven't been in in a very, 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 very long time. And I'm just trying to get back into it now. Okay. Um, and then one other quick Google article. Um, this one is from Cord Cutter News on, um, on May 17th, that YouTube is now going to start showing 30-second unskippable ads. And they announced at the, the YouTube Upfront event uh, last week that it will now start showing a 30-second ad that cannot be skipped um, on YouTube through selected connected or connected TVs. This comes as YouTube has started to crack down on ad blockers and pushing YouTube premium. At this time, we don't know when this will start or what devices it will appear on. Um, they're also starting to do ads when you pause uh, a YouTube video, which I think is utterly ridiculous. Um, and I did kind of go on a bit of a, um, uh, a, a rant about this the other day, but I find YouTube ads to be particularly awful. And it's so bad that I don't um, or I that that I pay for YouTube premium. And it's something that is extremely worth my time. Um, and, 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 and money to do because it makes it such a different experience. And what I find something that's really extraordinary is that when I go back to YouTube, uh, regular YouTube, uh, you know, which doesn't have the premium features with ads, I find YouTube to be basically unwatchable, um, that there are so many ads, they're so obnoxious and they're not really well integrated, uh, into the experience. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like that, that, uh, you know, I, I think I'm paying $9.99 a month for YouTube premium. And that also gets me YouTube music. I've had YouTube premium for so long that, I, you know, there's all these enticements that have been added on over time. Um, and my understanding is that relatively few people are like me that have had YouTube premium for this long. But, oof. And then you add to that, if you're using YouTube in the classroom, um, it, it it's, uh, it, you know, I, I question you know, the exposure of, 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 uh, you know, that many ads. I think that's also a problem as well. So, so this is yet another way that you have influenced me because hearing you talk about that and, and also just the irritation of the YouTube ads, it just finally became too much for me. I, I tried to take some drastic steps of getting my own raspberry Pi and trying to install this app that was going to try to, to block ads, but it, they're, they're too tricky. Those YouTube developer folks um to be able to bypass you know ads on apple tv and things like that it can work on uBlock origin in the chrome browser but anyway to my knowledge there's not some kind of open source way of of doing that but uh, i've had the same experience now when i have when i would go up to visit my parents and and so my dad um they uh, would typically watch a lot of television just regular over the air tv and man not watching the ads and then when you're in a situation where you're seeing them, it really just feels like an assault. And so I'm having the same situation now with the second YouTube account that I've created because I'm not going to pay YouTube premium on a second account. And so anyway, I'm, I'm having ads. But the other thing this makes me think of, and this, this is really an, a very, maybe an un, not an uncovered, but a, a little discussed side of, of, of the advertisement world. The ads, we, we, we know they're customized. You hear about this. But for instance, I now have, you know, these two different YouTube accounts and I'm seeing very different ads on each of them. I know that, um, you know, I've, I've taught Sunday school uh, for a while. And so sometimes when I would be doing research, it'd be religious based. It was just very 
obvious that because I had had a search history where I was doing some things, you know, YouTube was, for instance, thinking, I guess I was uh, a very strong religious conservative and some of the things that some of this was during elections and stuff like that. But wow, um, I had grappled with my friend Brian Turnbaugh about this. One of the things you got to be careful if you're going to teach students about this, you might almost have them create a separate account because I don't really, I don't think that it's good to ask somebody to do an assignment that is going to create a digital footprint for them and and in effect, what's that called? There, it's not a knowledge graph, but there's some kind of a word as far as like YouTube and everything that it's gathering about you. Um, <coughs> it's possible to you know delete things from your watch history, etc. But yeah. Anyway, I think, you know, what we've commented, this has been a while back. I mean, hey, you look at Wikipedia, look at that. We're looking at this, the same version of the article if we're bringing it up at the same time. You know, it might have, have had some kind of an edit, but basically we get to see the same version. But when it comes to Google search results, when it comes, it's just, it'll be interesting to see what chat GPT looks like uh, because it's generating new things each time. But anyway, the, the whole arena of, of Google search and, and search ads, it's something that I want to flesh out more in my own media literacy classes um, around advertising and raising awareness of students of the ways in which advertisements work. But yeah, I think that I love being able to escape the ads. So I just wish I could do that on the iPad as well. And there's really not any way um, other than YouTube premium, I guess, to do that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, you know, the, I, I watch a lot of YouTube and, um, you know, and I, I have certain sets of channels that I, I, I watch pretty frequently. There's about a half dozen cooking channels and half dozen travel channels. And I get fed a pretty regular diet of of a handful of other tech channels. But the bottom line is, is that makes a um, a pretty big difference. Um, let me do one other quick one here, uh, Wes, and then we could jump into this week's um, AI mess. Uh, this is an interesting article from TechCrunch earlier this week um, that's reporting that the government can't seize your data, but they can buy your data. And um, there is a uh, this is all uh, spawned from um, the overturn of Roe versus Wade last year and um, people that are seeking in states that have, have subsequently banned abortion to try to figure out if its citizens are going to other states uh, to get abortions. And as it turns out, um, your phone uh, tracks you and its location quite aggressively. And um, a lot of people started expressing concern that it would be used as a some kind of vehicle for tracking um, uh, uh, women that, that were seeking that medical care. And um, uh, uh, and, and being, uh, uh, using it to prosecute, uh, back in their home States and, um, the ignoring again, that debate for a second, um, the, uh, there are new rules that are preventing law enforcement, uh, proposed by the Biden administration, um, uh, uh, that basically say that it can't, um, um, uh, uh, sees uh, data from reproductive health care uh, company or from companies that 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 uh, have data on reproductive health care. And um, apparently that's all well and good, except that you can still buy that data from data brokers. And this turns into a bit of an expose uh, uh, quoting um uh, uh, the author that the FBI, the military, and several other government and regulatory agencies are frequent customers of data brokers, both domestically and abroad. They, uh, the data they purchase gives them alarming amounts of, of power to gather sensitive information on large groups of people. 
And um, that's both very interesting to me. And that's something um, um, uh, uh, Wes and I have talked about in the past that, in fact, I think at one point we were, we were actually going to see if we could purchase our own data. Um, I did read an article a couple months ago that suggested that that's exceptionally hard to do about one person. It's not impossible. It's just hard to do. But then it goes on to talk about things like the National Guard is taking advantage of this loophole by purchasing data to target and recruit high school students, and that the FBI is buying geolocation data to track millions of phones, all without needing a warrant. And, um, you know, the the term that Dr. Farrell likes to use is surveillance capitalism, um, but this is surveillance capitalism gone amok. Well, and I think it points to what we've talked about multiple times on the show, and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about we need some privacy law in the United States. Europe uh, leads us with GDPR. Um, You know, uh, we'll talk, I think, in the AI about Sam Altman's testimony before Congress last week. Um, You know, this idea of how are we going to regulate some of this tech sector, and we really, you know, need to need to do that. Uh, let me do one other one that um, just is uh, kind of a geeky uh, Fediverse thing. Uh, this is TechCrunch from May 23rd. Flipboard becomes the first app to support Blue Sky, Mastodon, and PixelFed all in one place. And Dr. Neifer, I heard a rumor that you're on Blue Sky. Is, is it I true? I made it onto Blue Sky thanks to my good friend Dr. Fryer sharing his uh, the only invite he's received so far. Um, I'm now on Blue Sky, and I have to say um, it is very Twitter esque. Like even adopting the color scheme and the layout of the page. Um, but so far, and and also it, it it doesn't seem to be a really huge place for edge Twitter yet, right? So I've noticed. In fact, I went uh, west to look at who you were following and there was a couple of names uh, uh big names in there of, of people in the ad tech space but uh, uh the, the people that were following you for example uh, uh like very few of them seemed like they were in any way associated with education so right right it is it's hard to get on and and so i've had to be on there two weeks but to get an invite and then uh apparently every two weeks i'll receive another one but it's it's really a small number of folks this TechCrunch article i'm really thrilled about this because flipboard I've used for years and it is absolutely one of my favorite apps on the iPad and the phone being able to have this visual, you know, digital newspaper experience is really superb. Um, Twitter, of course, the, the, or should I say the bird site, um, you know, cut off API access to most third party tools, including Flipboard. So I can no longer explore my Twitter lists, which I have invested tons of hours in over over time but on the good side we have these new tools mastodon being one and both jason and i are on mastodon um and on blue sky i'm i'm in, i'm now in this habit of for most of my ed tech things you know post cross posting on blue sky on mastodon on twitter and i'm even posting on linkedin and the k-12 leaders so anyway i don't know how long i will keep that up but i'm glad to see flipboard which is a fantastic app supporting this i kind of think that that maybe blue sky has lists i think maybe i saw something about that it doesn't have a web interface you have to be on the app in order to use blue sky which is odd with mastodon you can use the web web interface but anyway these are uh decentralized platforms and certainly this is on the the cutting edge of things but as people continue to wonder if the bird site, meaning Twitter, is going to continue to survive both financially and, and just in terms of its, its capacity. When you, when you have centrally moderated platforms with millions and millions of people, um, there are some just 
you know, there are some big problems and some big challenges that those platforms have. And so these decentralized platforms, um, the founder, Jack Dorsey of Twitter started Blue Sky, I think back in 2019. Um, and one of the biggest things they wanted to do was form, form this as a decentralized platform. So you wouldn't just have a single group of folks deciding what to moderate or not. So yay Flipboard, um, you know, and if folks out there are on Blue Sky or Mastodon, uh, please reach out. I, I like how Blue Sky lets you use a domain. And this is of course very geeky, but you can put an A record in the register, the registrar, log into your registrar for the domain that you own. For instance, I own westfriar.com. I got a code from Blue Sky, put a text record. It's not an A record, sorry. It's a text record. And that allows to verify. So my Blue Sky account is westfriar.com. So I think that's a cool way to do verification because they've are, you know, in terms of buying domains and credibility and stuff like that, it, it's an interesting twist on verification. There's a different way that you can verify websites and domains that you have on Mastodon. But anyway, maybe a little bit too much about that, but I'm not on PixelFed and I don't know that I'm going to jump on that one. So. Well, uh, the other thing I would tell you, did you hear that uh, Twitter didn't handle the big uh, Ron DeSantis announcement tonight very well? No, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, it... Uh, Amazingly, I, I, just, I, I wasn't with bated breath uh, waiting <laughs> waiting for all that. But. Yeah, uh, the New York Times uh, headline, DeSantis's big moment goes awry with Twitter meltdown. Uh, they apparently had... Um, uh, uh, server glitches and um, um, it, it didn't go so hot. And then both uh, Democrats uh, and then Donald Trump, um, um, <laughs> uh, you jumped on their various channels to to to, to trash on DeSantis. So, uh, yeah, that I don't think that went as anyone went. Can you? I know I said we didn't want to just talk too long about these non AI articles, but you know. The, the TikTok ban, which is statewide in Montana, that, that's a pretty big deal. And you put in uh, the article, I think, about that not working. Would you mind talking about that one? Yes. Um, well, so last week, uh, the governor of Montana, um, Greg Gianforte, did sign the TikTok ban. And we've talked about it in the past, so I won't go in, into a, a lot of details there. But that article talks about the technical challenges of this. And you know, there's already lawsuits. Uh, uh, five creators in Montana have sued for for uh, losing um, uh, losing access to the platform, which they say is critical for their business. Um, uh, TikTok itself has, has filed in federal court claiming its First Amendment rights were violated by the ban. But the article does talk about the challenge of this. And the Montana Attorney General, um, Austin Knudsen, uh, through a, a, uh, a press person said that that the, the concept of geofencing already exists and it shouldn't be that tough to figure out a way to do this with um uh, with with TikTok and of course geofencing, uh, you know, is a it, you, is a tool that kind of gives you some geographical cover here, but um, it's just not in the way that that I think they're they're uh, 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 thinking of it at working. And you know, I would say that. I mean, I, I don't agree with this ban from the standpoint that I think we should have a much broader conversation about data privacy and where data is stored. That's that would be my argument against the ban. Um, but I would also say that, um, um, you know, we do uh, well, a lot of states uh, don't allow you to download 
um, gambling apps, for example, and they've managed to figure that out. And so, I mean, I think there's probably a technological solution to this, but it just it's just a big mess. And if 50 different states have 50 different lists of what apps you can download or download and not download, I think that becomes pretty rough pretty quick. Let's go back to our pocket copy of the Constitution. I'm pretty sure that interstate commerce is supposed to be federally regulated. And I also think, you know, issues of national defense and national security, national issues, federal issues, not, you know, states. We're not going to reply, you know, rely on the Montana militia to defend us against the threat posed by, you know, China and in Taiwan or something. So uh, I think that this is probably yeah going to be sorted out by the courts and for a variety of reasons, starting with the Constitution. Uh, this is going to be something that I think federal voices are going to weigh in on versus versus state ones. But it is interesting, as you point out, with what's happening with gambling apps. So who knows? Yep. Absolutely. All okay, right. Dr. Fryer, we've, we've reached the AI hour. So let's go ahead and um, uh, get through this week's mess. Um, so I guess I would start off with uh, just kind of my own personal piece of, of AI world this week. Um, um, um I've been experimenting with all sorts of things um, this week. Um, I am trying to be a little more cautious about you know, where I use it from the standpoint of um, I do think the writing it creates, uh, and, and, and I would agree with a lot of, of teachers and professors I've seen write about this, is that it's not great writing. It sometimes is pretty good writing, and, can, and, it, and it does a good job of helping you rewrite writing or also spot errors inside of a particular piece. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, it's really no replacement for, you know, actually learning to write or, or writing well. And I think that's an important piece of this. But um, uh, one of the things that's not on here is that, uh, uh, open AI has released its own chat GPT, um, uh, uh, app, uh, on the, the iOS uh, platform. And the reason why this is important is because there were hundreds, if not thousands of apps that in many cases cost money or had in-app purchases that were essentially a front for the open AI chat GPT platform or use the API, but were really just there to take your money. And so now there's a free app available. I download it almost immediately and now gives me chat GPT access on my phone. I've been using it as well. Um, my uh, only AI article this week, uh, basically... <laughs> It's hard fork. And we've talked about this a bunch of times on the show. Uh, their latest episode from last Friday, Mr. Altman goes to Washington, but also, and I don't, I don't, did you listen to this one, Jason, with the, the case he goes on this American no, life, man, a- this is absolutely fantastic. Um, the summary. So as probably a lot of us know now, Sam Altman, one of the most important leaders in the technology world testified before Congress as Casey Newton and Kevin Ruse point out. And, and this they're you know, Kevin's with the New York times. He's the one that had the whole interaction with Sydney a few weeks ago that caused, um, caused Microsoft, um, you know, to get a lot of egg on its face by rushing to, to integrate chat GPT. I think obviously before it was proven and they had to go, you know, put, put additional requirements and limits on it. Um, they talked about how Altman's approach as the CEO of OpenAI is very different than what we saw from Sundar Pichai of Google and um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg from Meta, Facebook, uh, 
Jeff Bezos and and Amazon because those folks were were very distant. Um, Altman has made himself very accessible. The the tenor and tone of these interactions between congressmen and um, Mr. Altman is is um, frankly quite positive and. I, I agree with what they said. It, it took like six years to get some some testimony or hearings, I guess, at, at Congress about social media. And, and then when we did, there was just a lot of posturing and, and nothing actually happened. There was no legislation. But the stakes really do appear to be different with artificial intelligence. And um, Altman is asking for regulation. <coughs> and... Um, you know, the thing they clarified there, because he was he was asked pretty point blank. I mean, if you had a magic wand, you were queen for the day, what would you do? And so what he is asking for is a regulatory agency that that can regulate AI, especially when it crosses certain boundaries. Um, the whole thing with biology, proteins, uh, medicines, virology, viruses, there are all kinds of um, quite dystopian possibilities for these tools, which are just, you know, again, sort of in their early days. So this was really, really um, a fantastic uh, podcast episode, as I think pretty much all of, of Hard Fork is. Um, but then the the Casey Newton um, segment, they just play it from This American Life. And it's his interview and deep dive into the person at Twitter that was handling content moderation before and after Elon Musk took over and absolutely fascinating. And I do, I do think it's very important from a civic standpoint that we're talking about free speech and how free speech is limited. And, and at some stage, you know, from a, from a technology standpoint too, you just don't want to have unfettered free speech on any platform because it becomes a dumpster fire. And so anyway, there's a lot of really good insights into kind of what happened at Twitter before Musk, you know, during uh, Musk's uh, takeover and then afterwards. And and then ultimately um, the, the person who he interviews, um, I'm trying to see his name, um, the former head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, um, Ultimately, he had to resign because, um, you know, the, the, the changes that um, Twitter was making, um, you know, with respect to uh, verification, uh, you know, the, the proliferation of impersonation and, and just the, the cutbacks anyway, had reached a point where, where he had to resign. So phenomenal, wonderful podcast for so many reasons. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I now I really, 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 really want to listen to that. Um, I want to share an article from The Verge on May 16th that is super interesting. Um, um, th this is the uh, 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 CNET staff are unionizing, unionizing, citing editorial independence and the use of, of AI tools. And um, they have about 100 people that are trying to. Um, um, that are trying to uh, 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 unionize um, uh, for the purpose of a, a lot of reasons, I would imagine. But you know, as they say in 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 their press release, in this time of instability, our diverse content teams need industry standard job protections, fair compensation, and editorial independence, and a voice in the decision making process, especially as automated uh, technology threatens our jobs and reputations. And the reason why that is interesting to me is because there is a very similar conversation going on right now. Um, um, uh, uh, um, 
uh, around the writer's strike, the Writers Guild of America strike, uh, because of, um, in some cases, uh, 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 and there's a lot of reasons why the Writers Guild uh, says they're striking, but they are worried that they are also going to be replaced by AI um, and uh, lose the creative touch that goes into um, uh, most major uh, television productions and motion pictures. And I do think, I mean, I, I, you know, I, with what is happening to newspapers and magazines and news sites in the United States, um, I, it's going to be very hard to do this only through unionizing. But I could understand why professional writers would be concerned that their jobs are just going to start getting picked off one by one in exchange or uh, in, in exchange for a chatbot. How much displacement do you think we're going to see in the white collar job market? A lot. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think, um, 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 I, I think there's going to be a lot of upheaval in the next couple of years, even though the tools themselves aren't really going to do the job people think they're going to do. And I think one of the things, um, uh, that I think is, 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 is troublesome here is that, we some of the switches may happen and um um we may not uh, like know the transition or start to just accept lower quality content without um 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 uh, and and we may just not know the difference for a little while right and and it becomes kind of a dumbing down of content or a lower quality of content and then i think we end up in a weird impasse for a while because we don't really know what to do about that or the content's so cheap it's hard to start paying people again i mean one of the things um that i want to be uh you know really cognizant of is that you know newspapers made a really big mistake 25 years ago by giving their content away for free online right and even though i love that about newspapers 25 years ago the bottom line is is that it killed that model right the same is true of magazines the same is true in some cases of, of news television but what I have to wonder is, you know, can we use those lessons to make good decisions um, on behalf of what will allow AI to do and what we won't allow AI to do? And I mean, there is a lot of room for individual creators. I know that you, Jason, are, are supporting, I think, a number of, of different creators, you know, Patreon, there's, there's uh, Substack, you know, payment me mechanisms uh, for, for different creators. So I just, I wonder to the degree we're going to just move into a different era of journalism where, you know, individual journalists are going to, you know, find a way to pay the bills because of uh, these micropayment platforms. But maybe, you know, the, the thing that we've talked about before is local news, right? You've talked about Montana as far as just not a, a super populous state and, you know, not a, not a ton of local news coverage before internet now post internet, there's even less. So I don't know what the, the gap, who is going to fill the gap with respect to local news. Um, I'd like to think maybe that's a role for students to, to play a role in whether they're high school or, you know, community college four year college. I don't know, but you know, obviously professional journalists are the ones who can best cover the news and the nuance of it and, you know, get breaking stories and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, we are, we've been in a very interesting age because of the, Oh, what is it? The, the word, um, the consolidation of media companies and all these different, um, 
you know, companies buying, buying all sorts of folks, but um, I'll just put another plug in for not only media literacy, but specifically lateral reading um, because right now when it comes to local sources, as well as, you know, national news, you've got some really weird domains and organizations. And so being able to ask the question, wait a second, where is this coming from? How do I find out? Don't just go to the about page. Um, and I had a student this week and I've never said this before, but they actually put in a video. If it's a .gov or a .edu site, you can rely on it. Well, Anyway, EDU sites, you know, students have had lots of homepages and things that they could put on those. And that's just generally not what we should be telling students today is like, well, just, you know, trust a .org site, but don't maybe trust a .com. <clears throat> the, the inquiry has got to go. It's got to go further than that. <laughs> the domain, yeah. the domain level, um, you know, whatever the domain is, it's not going to be able to, to give it authenticity. So, yep. Well, here's a, 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 a play on the future. This is an article from The Hill on uh, May 22nd. Um, the market deeply, or, or I'm sorry, the market briefly, or, the, 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 the market dips briefly, says Jason, after AI image of fake explosion your Pentagon goes viral. And uh, basically, uh, there was a group of Twitter accounts that were verified, right? And since verified doesn't mean jack squat anymore, um, it, it, it was, you know, hard to tell the difference, uh, between that and a major news, uh, outlet. And they were mimicking, I think Bloomberg, if I remember correctly, yes, Bloomberg news, um, called the Bloomberg feed. And the headline was initial report, large explosion near the Pentagon complex in Washington, DC initial report and the photo itself. And I've seen a copy of the photo, um, uh, showed a, a smoke rising from a building that looked vaguely like the Pentagon. And um, shortly after the image went viral, the market showed a brief dip with the Dow Jones Industrial Average falling about 80 points and the S&P 500 down 0.26%, according to CNN Politico. The interruption to the market was brief, occurring only for a few minutes. And yeah, yikes. I mean, you know, it, it's not hard to create these images anymore. Um uh, you can create some pretty realistic looking images on 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 Mid Journey, but we have to stop now with the rule that seeing is believing, right? You need multiple sources from a variety of news sources in order to to believe something is true or factual. I don't know that we have this article in here, and I just remember, yeah, here it is. Did you hear about this Meta one point three billion dollar EU settlement? No. Okay, so again, listening to these different podcasts, this and we're, we'll we'll dip out of the the out of AI for just just a minute. Um, here's a this is a CNN article uh, from so many tabs. I'm googling too many things. Uh, CNN business. This is on May twenty second. Uh, Meta slapped with record $1.3 billion EU fine over data privacy. Um, this uh, eclipses all previous records of, um, of, uh, of fines that the EU has levied um, so far. And they are saying um, that the EU privacy laws, GDPR, have been violated because Facebook slash Meta has been illegally transferring the personal data of Facebook users to servers in the United States. Uh, I think we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, 
GDPR puts some pretty significant burdens on companies and in some ways sort of challenges really fundamentals of the internet, which is that, hey, it doesn't matter you know, where your server is, um, it's the internet, so you're going to be able to access it. it. It it says, hey, it does matter because they've said European um, citizen data, you know, has to be housed in Europe. So this was the largest fine ever levied under GDPR. The previous record of uh, 805.7 million was levied against Amazon in 2021, um, and they've been ordered. Meta has to cease the processing of personal data of European users within six months. So. Um, again, the differences between Europe and the United States, Europe has privacy law, you know, we don't. Is this going to make an impact on Meta? Um, I don't know. Um, I think until we see some privacy laws in the United States, I don't know we're going to see any significant changes as far as behavior and things like that. But that was a pretty big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see here. Uh, here's an interesting one. Um, this is from SSRN, which is a, 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 um, a research journal. And this is from that e e Ethan Mullick that um, um, uh, we've Never. talked about in the past. Uh, he's got a great Twitter account. And he writes this really interesting paper with another professor from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, which is basically... Um, uh, or it describes it as effective teaching strategies in the classroom using uh, AI with with prompts that they use to be able to create it. And I thought this was really interesting because um, I, I don't know what I think about, you know, uh, using AI to grade, for example, right? Interesting tools out there. I've played with it a little bit myself with rubrics, but it's sometimes interesting to highlight things, right? Um, but... Um, it's probably not there yet, um, but he uh, uh, he does um, uh, uh, show uh, you know, screenshots from all the major tools and creates um, uh, um, uh, a lot of material based on um, you know teaching materials in class, and then shares you the prompts to do it. And so it's things like um, here's an example prompt for ChatGPT or uh, GPT four or Bing. Um, I am a teacher who wants to understand what students found most uh, important about my my class when they were they are confused by it. Review these responses and identify common themes and patterns in student responses. Summarize responses and list the three key points students found most important about the class and three areas of confusion. And then they uh, copy and paste student responses uh, into here, and it analyzes them to to find you know, similarities and 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 w ways that they are diverse from one another. And I think that kind of thing uh imagine that in a focused tool that does purports to do these things for you or for teachers i think this could be incredibly interesting diagnostic tools for teachers absolutely uh are you a photoshop user um i have photoshop i use it occasionally i am not a good photoshop user I am out of gift links, actually, for the New York Times, so I don't have a gift link for that. Maybe we can drop one in. But this was New York Times uh, yesterday on May 23rd. AI Photoshopping is about to get very easy, maybe too easy. Um, and so basically the generative AI capabilities that we have talked about um, multiple times on the show are now integrated right into Photoshop. And so <clears throat> they um, have a series of pictures that the author uh, Farhad Manju <coughs> created um, that, you know, do some, some interesting things, putting 
arms in where they weren't there before, additional birds, putting other artifacts uh, into a, a skyline picture, um, but removing things. So a city picture where there's a car passing, uh, there's a skateboarder, uh, there's a wall. And, and so they've got like an animated GIF that kind of shows, you know, remo removing the blurry scooter and the car uh, to just, you know, highlight this uh, delivery guy. And so anyway, um, those tools are built right in. The most significant thing about this article, and I had not heard of this before, Jason, is that Adobe is pioneering a, it sounds like a watermarking tool, which they are hopeful will receive broad acceptance within industry and just worldwide. And it's going to be a way of being able to basically have a breadcrumb history of where a photograph came from. And so if there was AI modifications, the idea is that, you know, it's going to be revealed um, because of this tool. So it is called, um, well, it says, it says a thousand tech and media companies have joined in the initiative, including camera makers like Canon, Nikon, Leica, Microsoft, NVIDIA. Um, and then they've got a link to it. And it's just, the website is contentauthenticity.org. Um, and I'll put a link to that in as well. So um, I know that you are uh, trying to attribute whenever you're using AI, and that's something that we've talked about that is a best practice that we need to be doing as academics. But this is interesting that this is an actual standard that Adobe is pioneering and hoping that others in the industry are going to get behind. Okay. Um, this is an article that... Um... Um, I think we mentioned briefly last release, I think I referred to last week. This is from uh, future the bite on futurism.com, which is kind of an AI news aggregate site that I think is is uh, is it's been pretty interesting in, in pointing out articles, but they talk about a pretty uh, influential uh, newspaper, the Irish Times, um, ran an editorial um, uh, in its opinion section and said that um, uh, it was submitted to them and it was completely AI generated and completely made up. Um, and they post a, um, um, they posted a, uh, a retraction and an apology, but I, I just can't imagine that this is not going to get a lot worse pretty quickly. Right. And again, I have no solutions to this um, other than to say, we really, really need to ramp up our media literacy coverage immediately um, to, to help students kind of process through it. But, you know, um, especially as the AI gets better, which it will almost certainly, um, there's going to be a lot of, of instances like this where stuff ends up in papers. Maybe it's innocuous and maybe it's not. Um, that could really stir up some 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 unpleasant things politically, and it's just really unfortunate we're going to what what I would imagine is one of the most important elections um, in in recent memory next year. Whereas we have this possibility that a bunch of content could get generated um, that's really not generated by any human person. And I think that was the case where the the person said they wanted to poke the bear, stir the pot, you know, and and they were the, the newspaper actually discovered it because of the author's you know, confession on Twitter um, that they had done this. So yeah, what is the solution if you are running an op-ed desk um, other than, I guess, having somebody come in in person and maybe hand write <laughs> in front of you their op-ed? I mean, how how are you going to do the verification there to make sure that what's being given to you wasn't created with some kind of an AI tool? Yeah, totally. Let's see. Um 
I guess we're, I'm seeing a couple that are, that are carried through. Um, this one was from a couple weeks ago, but this, uh, this is the lead one on there, which is a gift link. Microsoft says new AI shows signs of human reasoning. Um, it's just, you know, we used to have the Turing test, which said, Hey, if you um, could be tricked into thinking that you're interacting with, uh, uh, a, com a computer and not a human, you know, then, 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 or if, if the, if the computer can trick you and, and make you think like you're interacting with a human. And, and I think chat GPT definitely says that um, this is interesting for several reasons. One of them, there are researchers at Microsoft. And so the critics are saying, well, obviously Microsoft is heavily invested in open AI, you know, basically saying this, the, the, the authors are, are corrupted, you know, because they're not impartial or neutral. Um, but they had given this AI system a puzzle that they thought would require an intuitive uh, understanding of the world. And so it described, here we have a book, nine eggs, a laptop, a bottle, and a nail. Please tell me how to stack them onto each other in a stable manner. And the AI system was very, um, you know, had, had a lot of ingenuity um, and came up with, with a way to, to do that. Um, and so anyway, this is interesting because it's sort of like getting not really to the sentience level, but certainly to the creativity level um, and just also trying to ascertain the depth of understanding. Anyway, I was having a conversation today with someone who was talking about as we're sort of arguing and wondering about that, oh, you know, does it have these capabilities? You know, to what degree does it, does it have, and then you know, will it have ethics? Will the AIs have, you know, you know, any, any kind of values? How are you going to know they're not tricking you? There's just so many different layers to this. But anyway, um, certainly Microsoft and OpenAI are benefiting a lot from all of the hoopla that is surrounding all of this. And I think I have the link in from last week, but that Naomi Klein article was, it's definitely the most critical one that I have read to date um, about some of the claims and things like that. Um, have you checked out this, is it called stochastic parrots or what is the, the Gebru, who is the Google AI researcher that um, left because of charges about the racist? Um, have, you, have you tracked with that? Or are you following her, her program? No. Okay. That is, yes, yeah, stochastic parrots, uh, which that means repetition of, uh, of phrases. But anyway, that's the organization that that she has. And uh, I don't know, I think we probably ought to make sure that we're giving some, some good hearing um, about, or we're giving us, we are paying attention to some of these critical voices um, as well, because, you know, certainly, um, certainly there's a lot of, of excitement and people that are being very positive about all this, but there are, there are definitely um, some good critical voices out there that we need to pay attention to. Yep. Absolutely. I'll put the link. I'll put the link to this one in there. This is a paper called "On the Dangers of St Stochastic Parrots: Can Language Models Be Too Big?" And this is a an article that Gebru wrote with with several others. I have not. I'll admit I haven't read this yet, but this is the this the, those are some of the arguments that and one of the voices that we should pay attention to. Um, I might be AI'd out. <laughs> <laughs> What? It's never uh, yeah. happened before, ladies and gentlemen. Well, let, 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 me, let me comment on one other thing. Um, I've seen a number of articles in the last uh, uh, three or four weeks uh, where, I mean, people that I trust are good, thoughtful people 
um, that are not trying to put the brakes on AI or artificially slow it down, but rather just wants to be thoughtful about it. Uh, one of the things they say is that anytime you hear the phrase, you know, like chat GPT. So yesterday, this is the new tool or the folks that are running around with old school uh, .com rhetoric about 10 Xing things, right? Um, that's just not a healthy growth, even though it's, it's happening really fast. I, I think we need to be really careful about the hype here. And yeah, that's uh, what I was trying to say. Yeah. yeah it's exactly. coming to your classrooms this fall for sure. But do you need to embrace it wholly in your classroom? Otherwise be a behind teacher? Well, of course not. Right. The conversations that need to happen have nothing to do with, um, uh, uh, you know, yes or no, it has to do with how we're going to inform ourselves and how we're going to inform our students about the changes that are about to come. Not necessarily embracing it as a tool useful in every assignment or every class. In fact, I think of anything, there's a lot of ways that AI harms learning uh, by, by how we know people learn. But if we don't start having those conversations in, in, in a way that's not just stuck on blocking and blocking only, then we're going to miss out an opportunity to embrace this in, in in a good, useful way, as opposed to a dangerous or disastrous way. Yeah. Agreed. Um, have you heard of Whisper as a, a voice uh, transcription tool? No. So Whisper was developed by OpenAI, and I don't, uh, there's a, I'll, I can put this introducing Whisper. This was September of 2022, but it is completely local and it is really, really small. And um, it's also phenomenally powerful. So with just recording a short amount of your voice, um, you can, you know, have a have a uh, a functional model that's going to be able to, you know, replicate your voice in, in all kinds of ways. So it's called Whisper. You can Google Whisper by OpenAI. I'll do this article real quick that I think I had from last week. This is nine to five Mac on May sixteenth. Apple's new personal voice feature can create a voice that sounds like you or a loved one in just 15 minutes. So evidently with Whisper, it can be a lot less, but there are, are a bunch of different tools like this. Again, on the Clockwise podcast this morning, they mentioned one called Eleven Labs, which I have not heard of before, but I am, I'm considering for some of the book projects that I'll be working on this summer, you know, rather than reading the whole thing and putting it out on Audible, how reasonable is it to be able to use one of these tools, train it on my voice, and then be able to have an audio version of a book that is synthetically generated, you know, with, with an AI tool. So anyway, glad to see Apple putting that in. One of the things that Apple is doing for this isn't so that we can all put out our own eBooks with a synthetic voice, but um, folks with ALS and other kinds of disabilities that limit speech, um, this allows people to be able to have recorded messages um, in their voice and be able to key those in conversations and um, is, is an accessibility feature that is really pretty phenomenal. So this is being included in the next version of iOS and uh, Apple has always been a leader when it comes to accessibility, uh, but that's a whole genre. And I don't know to what degree, Jason, you're, you're tracking that, but as far as the AI tools um, allowing for, you know, synthetic voice generation. Um, we've almost got 300 podcasts here now on the show. So as an example, <coughs> you know, we might be able to point these tools to our shows and say, hey, you know, create the, the voice of Dr. Neifer. But to the point about elections and all those things that are coming up, 
there are just so many tools and, and many of these are openly available um, that can be used to manufacture um, all kinds of media. So uh, the human voice, certainly lots of text, even video, the article that you said this week about the stock market dipping when there was a generated picture of an explosion at the Pentagon. I, I'm afraid these are just the signs of things to come. So, well, we have made it to uh, the top of the hour, Dr. Neifer. We did uh, start off, and I probably didn't even say that at the start, but that was my fault. I was having to make a brisket run tonight to the grocery store, and so we were a little bit late getting started. Any last articles you'd like to hit before Geeks of the Week? No, just looking here, I think we we did a pretty 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 good healthy truck at the whole list. So sounds good. Well, I'll do mine quickly. Um, seamless clipboard. Um, hadn't used this before, but have a I guess it's a 2015 MacBook um, that's still okay. Um, but thanks to your advice, Jason, I have tried Google OS Flex, uh, Google Chrome Chrome OS Flex. And so got a 16 gig flash drive, uh, of course, couldn't install that on my school computer since I don't have an admin account, but I borrowed my wife's computer, got that set up and, you know, boom, it's installed and, and, uh, and running fast. And so the seamless clipboard is available for, um, on the Chrome web store, um, available as a Chrome extension. You can get it for Android on Google play and you can get it for iOS. And what it allows you to do is very easily, uh, copy and paste links and other kinds of content between your devices. So I hadn't been using a Chromebook a lot. Now I'm using one a little bit and I thought, Oh, I want a way to be able to send my links over. And cause incidentally, when I'm doing my social media posts, I use the Apple notes app kind of like I used to use Evernote. Um, it's just so easy. And so I'll compose there with hashtags and everything like that. And then cross post that in different places. But if I get the link from the Chromebook, I need a way to get that over to my phone and the seamless clipboard is free and it's a quick way to do that. Great. Um, that's really cool actually. Um, and then I want to share, uh, uh, and I'm decently sure I've shared this one before, but, uh, I pretty constantly have websites that would like me to share an email address to get access to an article or maybe a free guide or something for people that are marketers. Um, and I have this, uh, particular, uh, a tool just in my toolbar, it's called temp mail. Temp mail allows you to create an ad hoc email address and shows you the inbox right there. Um, um, uh, uh, and then you can refresh it and then it will show you the email. So you can click on it to get a link or something. And then you close the email box and it goes away. You have not shared this because I would okay. remember it. This is really cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And there are times when, you know, that, uh, and I, I'm a lot more hesitant. I mean, I've had the same email address now for, for basically 20 years. So, you know, there's a lot of junk in my email, but I try to avoid sharing my address whenever possible. And tentmail.org is, is, uh, one of the tools I use to do that. That's awesome. All right. Well, where can folks find you, Dr. Neifer, when you are not here uh, so thoroughly covering the, the world of AI and educational technology for everyone? Well, uh, the best place to find me is probably still Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, but I'm also Knife, N-E-I-F, at Blue Sky. There you go. For the three people uh, out there that are uh, educators on Blue Sky. Um, I am Wes Fryer, uh, westfryer.com slash after. I'll probably update that uh, a little bit, but most of my social media pro profiles are there. And this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast, normally broadcasting at 9 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific, or sorry, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. 
uh, on Wednesday evenings, sometimes offset a little bit. And if you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, that is where we'll generally share an update if we're going to have to move a show or cancel a show. <clears throat> we will say that in the summer months, we sometimes um, have some travel. I know Dr. Neifer is planning an, an Icelandic uh, experience, and uh, that is going to be coming up. And so we'll probably have at least a few times where we may not be online, but generally uh, we are, and you can find MP3 compressed versions of audio only shows as well as all of our show notes and then links to our video versions on edtechsr.com. You can also uh, follow us on YouTube and anywhere finer podcasts are curated. You should be able to find us. And if you have an opportunity to leave a five-star review for us, that would be wonderful. Until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and keep playing with your generative AI tools because there's probably no better way to figure out what these mean for us than by playing with them, especially in areas in which you have some personal expertise. <laughs>